Last week, you might remember, I shared with you some reflections on this beautiful quality of of the heart, namely this quality of loving kindness. And tonight, what I'd like to share with you um, reflections on is this other quality of the heart, uh, compassion. And in particular, what I'd like to explore uh, together with you is is how this practice that you're doing, this Vipassana practice, or these, these words that the teachers continue to use, this, this, this uh, process of relax, observe, and allow, that that naturally actually leads to compassion. So that's going to be the topic, how compassion naturally arises from the practice that you're doing. And I... I I want to begin just by saying that I feel that this quality of heart is, uh, is so needed in our world these days. Needed for the beings and the, plant and, and the events that are happening right now. And even for the planet herself. And the way I'd like to begin is by framing my talk with a, with a poem to help uh, get us a sense of uh, a direction to go with this, this topic of compassion. And it's a poem by David White called The Well of Grief. He begins, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. I feel this this poem... Uh, it gives words to this movement, this journey towards compassion. This inward journey that leads to a natural compassion. And I appreciate how he begins, that, that those who will not slip beneath the surface will never know. Will never know that secret water cold and clear. And then most importantly, finding those small coins thrown by those who wished for something else. I feel that that's what you're doing here, is you're slipping beneath the surface. And you probably noticed it can feel like that black water going through that darkness. And that other beautiful description, in those moments of feeling as if you might not even be able to breathe. But what do we get when we actually touch our experience, that kind of experience? And again, his his words, I I feel, are are really quite poignant. (laughs) Finding that secret water, and more importantly, these small round coins. To me, that, that really signifies to see those small round coins and to actually find them at the depth of the, of the well is this, this turning, this turning of really, of, of compassion, of understanding the human condition, understanding the suffering of others. 
that act of wishing for something else. That's dukkha. When you slip beneath the surface, there's an opportunity to touch this natural compassion that understands those who throw those coins that are just like us. What is this compassion? Uh, The Pali word is karuna. And you could say it's, it's seeing the suffering in others or seeing the suffering in yourself and having this impulse or wishing for their freedom from suffering or, or maybe more precisely caring about their suffering or about your own suffering. There's another word that the Buddha uses that's uh, translated as compassion, anukampa. For example, in, uh, in one passage, he's speaking to the first uh, 60 monastics that came to full awakening. And he says to them, wander forth, O bhikkhus, for the welfare of the multitude, for the happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good, the welfare, and happiness of devas and humans. Let not two go the same way. Teach, O O bhikkhus, the Dhamma, that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So within this, 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 um, this calling them to, to, to wander forth out of compassion is this word anukampa, which literally means to, um, to sh- shake or to tremble with. The, the last part of the word comes from uh, kampati, which literally means to shake or tremble, which I find uh, very striking. That, that compassion is, is more about this quivering of the heart, this movement of the heart that is moved, that quivers in a skillful way when it touches the suffering of another or touches or is exposed to our own suffering. And, and I want to point out, I find it striking that really what has brought us the Dharma in this day and age is this movement of the heart. It was out of compassion, out of this anukampa that, that, that we're given the Dharma. And, and I think it's important to uh, see what's within this word or within this definition of where we're beginning. We're not actually beginning with a kind of action. Compassionate action is really important, but in Buddhism, and especially in early Buddhism, it doesn't begin with kinds of action. It, it begins with a quality of heart or a quality of mind. That's where this journey of slipping beneath the surface must begin. Again, what comes to mind is that statue that's at the back of the room of Kuan Yin. I find it striking that the image of Kuan Yin is that she's sitting there in a pose of relaxation. It's, it's not like other images of compassion. For example, another striking image of compassion that I, I love of is, is uh, the image of the Good Samaritan. 
which you might remember picking up the person who had been robbed. Beautiful picture from Delacroix and, and Van Gogh. And you can feel the heartfelt quality in it. But it's, it's a picture of compassion in terms of action. This is a different beginning place. As Greg mentioned in his, his talk on uh, a mind states, that first verse of the Dhammapada, mind, mind is the forerunner of, of all things. This is where it begins. And the reason I want to point that out is because um, recognizing that it's a quality of heart or mind makes us sensitive to um, what compassion is not, what, what compassion gets confused with. So I want to share with you a little bit about also what, what it isn't. What it isn't is this expression, idiot compassion, which actually comes from uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. And his student, uh, Pema Chodron, explains it. She says, it's this general tendency to give people what they want because you can't bear to see them suffering. Basically, you're not giving them what they need. You're trying to get away from your feeling of I can't bear to see them suffering. That is not compassion. That's about my inability to be with what's, what's being moved. It's, it's the inability to be with the quivering heart. And, and this is also heard in um, the description of what is uh, called the near enemy of compassion. Kind of two different words I, f- I find under this category. One is pity. Pity gets confused with compassion, but it is not compassion. I feel in this context, pity is this quality of when we see the suffering of another, but we don't want to get too close from it, so we end up being feeling separated from it, maybe above it. So we feel like we can respond to it, but we're really not allowing the heart to be moved by it, keeping that distance, not really touching it actually an unwillingness to slip beneath the surface. Or the opposite, or the, the, the other extreme, which their near enemy is called sorrow. And I feel in this context, that's really speaking to this, um, the experience of when we come and touch suffering, but it's so much that it actually overwhelms us. And then there's an inability to really be with it, to, uh, to have a skillful quivering of the heart. It's too much for the heart. Or other things can motivate things that can look like compassionate action, such as guilt. Again, so much of the actions that come out of guilt is about because of our discomfort of what's going on inside of us, rather than uh, a quivering of a heart of, of, of responding skillfully to the suffering of another. And when I explain this, I want to be clear. It's not like we're trying to get to a place where all we feel is compassion. Rather, this process of making it more available to us, 
and allowing whatever you feel to simply feel that in terms of if pity arises or guilt or sorrow arises, that we're simply being with that because that, that is planting the seeds for compassion. And yes, when there is a skillful quality, the skillful quality of, of mind or heart of compassion, action does spring out of it. I'd like to share with you an example of this that uh, happened during the Buddha's time. Which I find very striking. And I just want to share this with you. This comes from uh, the Vinaya. And it begins, Now at that time, a certain monk was sick with dysentery. He lay fouled in his own urine and excrement. Then the Blessed One, on an inspection tour of the lodgings with the Venerable Ananda as his attendant, went to that monk's dwelling and, on arrival, saw the monk lying fouled in his own urine and excrement. On seeing him, he went to the monk and said, What is your sickness, Bhikkhu? He replies, I have dysentery, venerable sir. But don't you have an attendant? No, venerable sir. Then the Buddha asks, Then why don't the monks attend to you? I don't do anything for the monks, venerable sir, which is why they don't attend to me. Then the Buddha addressed venerable Ananda, Go fetch some water, Ananda. We will wash this monk ourselves. As you say, venerable sir, the venerable Ananda replied, and he fetched some water. The Buddha sprinkled water on the monk and and the venerable Ananda washed him off. Then, with the Buddha taking the monk by the head and venerable Ananda taking him by the feet, they lifted him up and placed him on a bed. Then the Buddha, from this cause, because of this event, had the monks assembled and asked them, Is there a sick, sick monk in that dwelling over there? Yes, venerable sir, there is. And what is his sickness? He has dysentery, venerable sir. But does he have an attendant? No. And then the Buddha asks him, then why don't the monks attend to him? Because he doesn't do anything for the monks, venerable sir, which is why they don't attend to him. And then the Buddha says, bhikkhus, you have no mother. You have no father. Who might tend to you? If you don't tend to one another, who then will tend to you? Whoever would tend to me should tend to the sick. I find this so striking. Just the image of, of, uh, of the Buddha and, and Ananda coming in and on the sight, the image of another monk suffering, they just directly respond. It's not contingent upon what the monk has done for others. If there is suffering, there is a response. 
this I, I feel is, is a beautiful example of, of this quality of compassion. So how does this practice that you're doing, you can say this, this, this practice of relaxing, observing, allowing, bring forth a natural compassion? How does this work? Actually, b- before that, I do want to touch upon... Um, kind of a, a, an active use of, of, of compassion, namely self-compassion, before I get into that, because I, I find it so helpful in terms of um, uh, practice on retreat, and for that matter, off retreat. And this process of, of touching your own suffering, but in a way that you're caring about it. May I be free from suffering? May I care about this suffering? And also the movement of noticing that the, the way I'm suffering right now is, is connected with the human condition that other people are suffering in this way. That movement I, I, can, I, I find so helpful in, in my practice at times. For example, I had just uh, I'd done a long retreat. I think I was on retreat for maybe a month or so, and I'd come back home. And, you know, some of you probably know what it's like when you come back from a, a retreat, you feel, I was feeling great, <laughs> you know, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put it away, covetousness and grief for the world. <laughs> there I was. And uh, there I was, and I was home, and I was so excited to be practicing, and, and this idea that now life was going to be smooth. And I think, I know, <laughs> Yes, it's a bad setup, isn't it? <laughs> you can hear it coming already. And like three days later, um, I started getting phone calls um, from a variety of different people about a, a serious situation that was happening in our community, kind of our meditation community that had kind of blown up. And people were wanting me to respond in some kind of way, and I was getting all these <laughs> different perspectives on it. And, the, and in the midst of that, my mind got hooked. It was so hooked by this whole situation. I didn't know what to do. And uh, so I was practicing. I was practicing, you could say, this um, relax, observe, and allow. And if I do that, please go away. (laughs) 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 Have you ever tried that one? You know, that impulse of, okay, I will show up for this as long as you leave very soon. And I don't know why, but it wasn't working, <laughs> which I was uh, very disappointed with, with that. Because then you might notice, if you've ever practiced that technique the way I have, the next step is, um, well, if it's not working, that means there's something wrong with me. Or the reason I'm feeling this is because my, my practice is so bad. All these start, uh, thoughts start to crop up, these judgmental thoughts, thoughts of something's wrong, usually with me. Ever see that phase of the practice? <laughs> so there I was. 
And I realized all I could do, um, uh, which was such important turn, uh, a turning in, in, in my practice after this retreat, was just to say, wow, um, this is tough. This is really difficult. And I care about it. That was a really important turning point because by saying that, I'm, I'm saying that it's not about that there's something wrong with me or I should be a better meditator. It's acknowledging the simple fact that there is suffering right there. And it was a huge turning point in the sense of what it allowed me to do was it allowed me to sink into the difficulty, the hurt, and the suffering. Which I want to point out is, is important. This isn't one of these stories of there's self-compassion and voila, it's all gone and I had the answer. It wasn't about that. It, it allowed me to actually start to practice. And what I needed to do is I actually needed to feel that hook. And I had to have the willingness to feel that hook actually for a number of days. But the self-compassion uh, reminded me that this is okay. This is okay for me to feel like I'm drowning. Because that was the movement. That was the movement of uh, slipping beneath the surface in that well of grief that David White was talking about. And then that opened up the conditions for wisdom to arise. And as Andrea was saying, when wisdom arises, it does its work. It, it does its work, which is this, this work of letting go. And then there was, there was more clarity. I was clear about how I needed to act because the situation needed action. But also how to let go around it too and to look at my expectations. This is really the, the power of, of such a, a, a small movement of self-compassion. And it's not just in the, the act of, of this self-compassion that, that it rises, but as I was pointing out, that this arises through what you're doing, through this relax, allow, and observe. And in particular, with this, these qualities of allow and observe. The allow piece. One way I, I see this is that through allowing, like I was doing with this, this difficulty, is that it's you could say cultivating your capacity, your capacity to be with. Because that's what's needed for me to really allow this heart to, to quiver and to tremble with the suffering that I see. There has to be a capacity for that. Because if the capacity isn't there, then I usually run away from it or there's an overwhelm. And I want to point out this, this process of allowing and learning this allowing is um, it's a messy affair, which you've probably noticed. There's a being present, but then we fall down. We scrape our knees. We might feel overwhelmed, yet we get up again and come back to the practice. This is what happens when you go outside and become curious and play around with this mind. Yet within that playground, capacity builds.
And it's not only with this allow, but with the observe. And in particular, it's seen a, a, a particular flavor of experience. Namely, uh, this selfless quality of experience, the, the anatta, this, one of the three characteristics that the Buddha talks about, that, the, 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 that we want to become sensitive to, not so much look for, but become sensitive to, to allow, allow in, because this insight is what leads to wisdom, it leads to freedom. And I want to share with you, it leads to a deep compassion. As uh, Deagle Kinshay Rinpoche said, he said, when you recognize the selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. He's pointing out that somehow when this is seen, the selfless nature, that naturally what's going to arise are qualities like loving kindness and compassion. So it begs the question, how, how is the unfolding of, of seeing the selfless nature of, of phenomena, how is that connected to compassion? And I think the way we need to begin is to understand what I mean by this word self, and in particular, how it's confining and oppressive, how it kind of clamps down on the heart so that this natural compassion can't arise. So what is this self? This is from, again, one of the discourses. One of the monastics asked this to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, how does personality view come to be? The Buddha answers, Here, Bhikkhu, an untaught, ordinary person regards material form as self, or self as possessed of material form, or material form as in self, or self as in material form. She regards feeling as self, perception as self, formations as self, consciousness as self. That is how personality view comes to be. What is the the Buddha saying here? He's saying that the self is really this process of identification where we take some sliver of experience and we say that's me or that's mine. And of course, in this uh, passage, he's referring to uh, the five khandas, these five areas of our, you could say, experience that we have a tendency to say, oh, that's me or mine, to the body, or to uh, feeling tone or vedana, namely, as I mentioned actually in the last talk, who is it the person that, uh, that, that finds this pleasant or unpleasant? That's me. Perception. Who is it that names that that's a crow or a junco or a frog? That's who I am. That's, that's me. Or sankara, the simple, a simplified way of understanding it. Who is it that has the volition to move this arm? I am moving my arm. Right? It's very obvious, this, this sense of self that can be right there. Or consciousness. Who is aware? I am aware. Another, I think, frame that can be helpful to get a sense of this process of self-identification is around a story, because we do this a lot, right? We tell a story of who we are. Who am I? I'm the one that grew up in this place. I went to this school. I had this job. I got in this relationship. 
These are my values, these stories, these narratives. But you might notice, I'm sure, by this time in the retreat, how confining those can be. Because we can have the story of, I'm a good meditator, or I'm a bad meditator. The story that I've already mentioned that gets mentioned a lot, something's wrong with me. I'm flawed, I'm troubled, I'm perfect, I'm kind, I'm not so kind. (laughs) There's a limitation around that. Actually, I want to share with you a a poem that I I feel exemplifies this. This is uh, is a poem by a woman by the name of Virginia Hamilton Adair. And she lived in Claremont, California, which was the, you could say it was the town almost underneath the Zen Center that I, that I um, uh, lived, on, lived at for a number of years. So if you were in Claremont, and you went up into the San Gabriel Mountains to Mount Baldy. Mount Baldy Zen Center was up there. And she used to come up to do Sashin, or a Zen meditation retreat. This was before I was there. And she wrote a poem about her experience when she was uh, on Sashin. And the, the title of the poem is Zazen, which basically means... Um, Za means sit, like a zafu or zabaton, and zen is zen, meditation. She begins. When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, Carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with F's, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from the Dima Dip supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. I love her description of coming to a retreat. (laughs) Staggering under a Saratoga trunk. Have you noticed the Saratoga trunk that you brought? that wasn't, I don't think it was on the list. Was it on the Spirit Rock list? (laughs) It's amazing what we carry around that we call me or mine. And I want to point out, which I I really appreciate that she points this out. Isn't it a relief that nobody notices it, that you can be walking around with this like crazy Saratoga trunk and no one's noticing it? What a relief, huh? No one, as she says, remarked that you brought too much. 
and, and the description is, is great, and, uh, which I appreciate. Chemistry quizzes with Fs. It's amazing what can happen when we're growing up and we go to school and how even those letter grades can determine who we are, if we're smart or dumb. And even more importantly, even the horse I never had. Carrying around even the things that we didn't get or didn't happen. This is the confinement of the self. This is the oppression of the creation of identification. Taking those things and saying, this is who I am. And it's not only to ourselves, but we do this to others. Have you noticed this? One striking example of this, uh, I have a friend and he was telling me in their family, this is a little bit extreme, but I, I feel like we all do this to at least a subtle level. He said, their parents uh, treated them in a very certain way. So his sister was musically talented. So she always got praised and was supported when she was um, playing the piano. But academics, uh, you're not into academics. You're the musical one. That's for the other. That's for the other child. That's for our son. You're supposed to be the musician. And then there was one that was very visually gifted artistically. She wasn't supposed to go into music. She was going to be the artist. And it was like each child had a role that they wanted them to play. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe in family or in friends, somebody has some view or story about you and then you're confined by it. I'm sure you know how oppressive that feels when there is an identity imposed upon us in that way, when there's some kind of self that is put upon us. We, we do this even on a, a, sometimes even a collective level, on a broader level. There can be, for example, the assumption of sameness and the lack of recognition of difference. And unfortunately, a lot of times we see this when we're more in what would be a minority group rather than the dominant or majority group around so many things, around ability, where we sometimes don't see things or we think that everyone is the same. Sexual orientation, race, gender, ethnicity. This happens we can carry around these blindnesses. And this practice is to break through that so that we're not confining people in that way. And it's usually the things that we don't see. Maybe one example of this. I, I, uh, I lived in London for a while and I was living in this very alternative community. It was actually a community for homeless. Um, there was us volunteers, but we'd get together really to create community with um, 
folks who were living on the street. And the, the idea, the way it got started was there was a Catholic priest in the 60s that said there was a need that was being missed and it was the need of community. So, you know, and in, in, especially in London, a lot of these uh, things were being ta- taken care of, but not uh, community. So it was really creating community and also not with the impulse to come join our community and then we'll get you ready to go back into society. It was a very cool community in the sense of if you want to join this community, we'll make it so you don't have to go back into society. So there was this actually a farm for folks who had lived on the streets for them to lift, live the rest of their lives. So anyway, I was in London and uh, I was with this uh, woman, I think it was a German woman, and we were walking around with um, a guy that was part of the community and it was decided that we were going to go stop uh, for fish and chips. And we went into the restaurant and um, into this place to order. And I think both of us realized there our blindness by bringing him there, which was uh, a blindness around what it was like for him. Namely, he had a Cockney accent and we were in a part of London where he felt incredibly uncomfortable with the way he spoke English. And then the other thing, which again is this is how blindness can work if we're not sensitive, and and luckily we caught this in time, is that he couldn't read. So if you can imagine going into a restaurant where you in some ways speak a different language, but also are expected that everybody thinks that you can read what's on the menu. It's this, this blindness that we can carry. And to actually, it was kind of confining and oppressive to him for us to assume that he could read. And luckily, we picked that up. And what we did is we started to have a conversation, me and this German woman, about what we saw on the, on the, uh, on the menu that was up there. And, this, and talking out loud about the things that we wanted or didn't want, which really allowed him to feel comfortable. That he could hear what we were saying and then decide what he wanted. Again, it's so important to be aware of these blindnesses because if we're not, we confine and oppress. And it prevents a natural compassion from arising. Momentary experience, you could say, is much simpler than what the mind creates, what the mind heaps heaps on top of it. Greg uh, shared with us in his first talk uh, the, the story of Bahia, the Bahia of the bark cloth, and those pith instructions that the Buddha gives to Bahia, inviting him to see that in the herd, is, in, in, in hearing is just the herd, and seeing is just the seen, right? And, and, and the felt or the sensed is just the sense. There's no I there. There's no... There's no um, I that we need to heap on top of that experience. There's nothing that we can call me or mine there. Or the Buddha puts it in another way in this, in this passage. He says, practitioners, what is the totality of life? Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of life. It is simply the eye and sights the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who said they were going to describe anything beyond this as the totality of life would not be speaking of something they knew about. 
that is experience. And it becomes complicated, filled with suffering when we heap on top of it a self or kinds of worlds that are created around this self-identification. How to become free of this process of self-identification, how to see it clearly so the heart is not hindered. Again, the bhikkhu gives really clear instructions around this. It says, therefore, practitioners, any, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, our all form should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. This is what we can begin to see see through this quality of observation. That whatever arises, it's not me. I think there's a number of ways to start to get a, a feeling sense of this or a taste of this. One way that was helpful for me was actually labeling. For example, just I remember just taking time to really label at times, thinking, planning, remembering, wanting, not wanting. Because what was implied with that is that it's not about me or I am wanting. It's simply that wanting is arising. And with that repetition, it started to become such a relief. Wow, it's such a relief that these thoughts and these states of mind are not me. Because <laughs> if they're me, that means I'm a very crazy person. <laughs> what a relief. And, and sometimes you can get a, a, a feeling of that just from, from uh, labeling. Like even right now, if you get a sense of breathing or just popping in as you feel the breath right now, breathing is happening. It has a different feeling sense than I am breathing. Not that you have to use labels, but you might, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pointing this out so that there's a sensitivity to this and openness to this. And then from that, there can be deeper and deeper senses that, that it's just experience unfolding without a need of an eye at the beginning. And I, I want to point out the trickiness of this, of getting this. And one of the reasons is because of language. It's important to remember that the way you experience each moment is heavily um, influenced by language. We, we come to see experience uh, as a result of, of the mind being shaped by language. And we have a language that has for each verb a subject. So then it can start to not make sense to us if somebody says, well, intention, how can there be an intention without a self that's intending? Well, that question's coming from, be, from a mind that has been completely shaped by language. But I, I really want to emphasize to you that just because there's a subject and a verb in our language doesn't mean that that's a, an accurate description of how experience unfolds. It's really important. 
It's like language has deceived us. And with practice, we can begin to undermine that, to see that there's not really a fixed sense of self at the center of it. And in some ways, we use language to undermine that. Just, I think that's the power sometimes of, of labeling. I think another thing that can be uh, so helpful with this is um, with allowing uh, a sensitivity to this quality of um, that this is not me or mine. It actually comes from uh, this composer, or as he called himself, inventor, John Cage. Do you, do you folks, maybe some of you, know or don't know John Cage? He was an avant-garde musician, inventor. I think his, his most famous um, composition was um, usually entitled 4.33 or 4 minutes and 33 seconds, which I thought was brilliant, which was, um, I think the, the instructions were, it was uh, a composition for in, in three movements, for any number of instruments. And they were supposed to get up on the stage and then go through movement one, which was meant for them not to play. Same for the second movement and the third movement. In order for the piece to be about the sounds that are happening right now, which I thought was brilliant because it allows us to become unfamiliar with what we mean by, by music. And so you had this wonderful quote where you'd say, I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I'm doing. Can you become unfamiliar with what you're doing? Can you become unfamiliar with your experience? Because that helps undermine this, this, this hold that language has had on our brains. In terms of an example, I am so appreciative of Andrea and her talk last night. (laughs) I think that was the perfect example of becoming unfamiliar with something. Unfamiliar with the wandering mind, right? And she gave us this different frame. Why think of it as the wandering mind? Instead, think of it as, as, as mindfulness disappearing and reappearing. Can you become unfamiliar with that dynamic? When the self isn't there, when it's not confining, compassion naturally arises. And we have experiences that tear us out of this self-centric view. I feel that that's when compassion arises. So I'd like to give an example of this, of, of, um, with, with breaking through the self and having this quality of allowing compassion is there. Uh, this is a story, actually I heard this on the radio, I, I, I really found it uh, quite moving. It's a story about a man by the name of Hector, who lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he went through the unfortunate experience of um, his daughter was murdered uh, where he lived there in, in Georgia. And the murderer, whose whose name was Ivan, actually confessed to it readily. He gave a uh, guilty plea. And of course, Hector really uh, spoke about how devastating this was. And for him, Ivan was uh, a monster. 
And of course, he was filled with incredible amount of anger. He was really thinking that he really wanted to push for the death penalty for, uh, for, for Ivan. So, so this world of fury and being faced with this monster. And he goes to the trial and he decides uh, before he goes to the trial that he wanted to make sure that his statement was um, that he had written it out beforehand so that he could kind of keep some composure. Goes to the trial, Ivan is sentenced. He reads um, his statement. And afterwards, he has this impulse, impulse to actually look at Ivan. And he looks over at Ivan, and he sees actually tears streaming down his cheeks. And he says, he looked into Ivan's eyes, and he said, quote, it was like seeing a soul in hell. You could say, in that moment, the world that he had created, the, the self or the story that he had created about Ivan had been destroyed, had been undermined. That sen- sense of self that he imposed on Ivan was now torn apart. That confining story. And what started to pa- blossom was this movement of his heart. which is really quite striking. He says, after that, after a while, he decided actually to write Ivan while he was in prison. And I think in his first letter, he says, my daughter tried to make the world a better place. We should also try. And basically, this is my attempt to make the world a better place. And Ivan writes back, he says, God bless you in all things. I know God has forgiven me, you have forgiven me, but I cannot forgive myself. I don't know the kind of love your daughter had for the world, but if it is anything like yours, it is great. And then Ivan really opens up. He says, please feel free to ask me anything you like. Hector writes back, please tell me about your life. Ivan shares really so much of his life and Hector decides to write a letter back sharing about his life. And this begins an exchange of letters that goes on for years and years to the point where Hector actually at Christmas is sending Christmas packages to to Ivan. (laughs) And and he says a really interesting thing about this, which I think uh, talks about... uh, 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 compassion and, and an open heart. He says, he says, here I am uh, sending letters, uh, uh, packages, Christmas packages to Ivan, the, the man who murdered my daughter. And this thought comes up, you crazy old man, you're sending Christmas, Christmas packages to the man who murdered your daughter. What is wrong with you? which I want to point out that in some ways his acts of the heart made no sense to his intellect, to his self, his created self. Yet his heart was venturing into a realm that he couldn't understand, that he couldn't figure out or couldn't make sense of. 
I feel that's the power of compassion, that's the power of this practice, is it takes us into a realm that you might not be able to understand, but it has a, a, a tremendous amount of power to it. So, so I, I just want to point out, when, when you do this practice, it really has this potential to, to, to open the heart when we observe in a way to see the selfless nature of what's going on and cultivating capacity in terms of allowing. And to remember, just like Hector had to remember, it actually doesn't have to make sense. That it doesn't have to fit in some kind of neat package to really allow the heart to move first rather than this small created self. So may our practice together here lead to a great compassion for all beings. Thank you. So let's sit just for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.